Happy holidays. What? No, is Bobby. That, no, is that no, not no, the no, right no. intro? No. We, we, uh, we promise no singing. How about this? Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 50 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I will not sing on this episode. Uh, I'll put you to the test on that when we get to our frivolity. Um, Bobby, episode 50. Halfway there. Uh, it's <laughs> remarkable. Are, you, are we going to stop at 100 or do you think there might still be national security law issues at that point? If we're still here. If right, we're still here. You know, I mean, given what H.R. McMaster has been saying the last couple of days about war with North Korea, um, if we're still here for episode 100, I'm optimistic. But, you know, like the Super Bowl, the Roman numerals are getting more and more complicated. Uh, that's an interesting question we should talk about later. Should they get rid of the, the numbering system for the Super yes. Bowl? Or should they just get rid of the NFL? Well, I mean, listen, I, I, this is not going to surprise anyone who's heard me talk about football before. The day that we find a verifiable test for CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, encephalopathy, you know, um, right? The day that we find a way to test for that in people who are alive, football's done. I, I think that, uh, uh, that that's an interesting possibility, but it's not just football. If you're if you're able to apply that test, yeah. that could be damaging for many sports. I think, though, you're just upset about the New York Giants. Well, there, there's more than nothing to that. I mean, it, it is true that, that my professional and indeed my college football teams have not exactly had a, a year to be proud of. But, but I do think that we're seeing more and more focus every week on the dangers of, of football. And, and, you know, I think there are, this is getting way far afield. I, I think there are also some social, economic, and class implications to this as well. But, you know, we'll save that for when there's a, a verifiable test for CTE and in live individuals. There you go. All right. Well, so what should we talk about? We've yeah, got not, a lot going on. Nothing nearly as interesting. No, no. Let's, let's do the following. So first up, let's talk about something that we uh, should have addressed around the end of November, but in the, the rush Stuff of other things, going on. We, we got distracted. And that's the, uh, the postmortem on the Abu mm. Qatala Benghazi trial, which actually produced a, a fascinating result. And then the best part of the whole deal, uh, uh, Washington Post reporter Spencer Shu has uh, managed to get hold of a couple of the jurors. I'd figured out who they were and got a couple to talk to them and provided us with an inside perspective on um, why that particular case turned out the way it did. So we'll, we'll dig into the details and see if there are any larger lessons to be drawn. Um, second, uh, how about the Mueller investigation and the questions? That old chestnut. Yeah, this this one will be with us every week when thanks. This time we've got a real uh, legal issue to parse, and that is the, uh, the set of questions, constitutional and statutory, uh, and perhaps otherwise, surrounding the reports that the, the investigators obtained from the General Services Administration, uh, a big batch of emails from the presidential transition team. And we'll explain mm -hmm. the context, and then we'll walk through the legal issues that yep. this may raise. Yep. Okay. Um, and then we, but we actually, I mean, that's going to be the, the real focus. We have a little bit, to, we're going to do a lightning round on things in which there's nothing happening. So, for example, the continuing, Bobby, to me, increasingly troubling lack of a decision from Judge Chutkin. I'm with you. In we're, ACLU so versus Mattis. Yeah, that's, our, that's our ongoing saga of and, the still unnamed U.S. citizen held in. And there's also, there's also the ongoing saga of the still unenacted uh, extension of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Which, which I predict by the time we record Episode 51, will have been given a one-month extension. Wow, big, if big, not longer. big prediction from, from Chesney. You heard it here first. That's right, that's right. So, um, uh, and, and then I think we're going we're gonna to preview our constitutional law final exams. <laughs> I'm not saying a word. I'm not saying a word. But but, but uh, our, our exams are on Thursday. That's right. So uh, we will be laying low at that point. Uh, don't, Vladek never 
never heard of them. Haven't seen them. <laughs> it's not here. Uh, we will uh, wrap up in that spirit uh, with some serious frivolity. Very serious frivolity. Uh, kind of staying with our this month's or this uh, winter's theme of movie uh, frivolity. frivolity. Uh, the soundtracks. Best soundtrack. Now, now I have a series of meta questions about the category. So that's half the fun of this category. Well, so 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 one of my so just to sort of so I can start thinking about this while we're while we're going. So, do soundtracks include scores, or do you mean soundtracks with actual songs with words on them? Uh, that might just be two separate categories. And but I absolutely think mm. we need a subcategory for symphonic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a, a full symphonic performance of scores where there's there's mm-hmm. it's not it's not songs. It's it's just right yeah. music, and, and there, there's going to be some there's going to be some low hanging fruit that I'm sure we'll agree upon. And and and, and and one more clarification question, just to, to tee up our discussion for the end of the podcast: um, a movie that is the cinematic version of a Broadway musical. Does that count? Yeah. So I I'll say more about this later, but I think we need to have a, either a whole separate category or just exclude the stuff where the whole movie is about is the songs, mm. right? So musicals in general. Well, so I'm thinking like Rent or Les Mis. Yeah, where, exactly. Where, where clearly the original production is the play. Right. Exactly. All right. So you have that to look forward to, or dread, or not. as the case may be. <laughs> uh, let's let's give them what they came here for: some national security law discussion. I thought I thought they came here for some nabulence. And and, and 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 something <laughs> to help them put them least. to sleep between encephalopathy and uh, some. It's it, it's longer. It's encephalop. Uh, okay, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> this is why I went to law school, not medical school. Latin is better for me than Greek. Well, speaking of medical stuff, let's do that post mortem on the Abu Ghazal <laughs> trial. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Cleveland. <clears throat> can, wait, can I just say, by the way, since since I forgot to do this last week, yeah. your your attempt at humor, successful or not, I leave to the to the listeners, <laughs> yeah. reminds me of a great new show Karen and I've been watching on um, Amazon Prime. Oh, what's that? The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay, I don't know about this. So Rachel Brosnahan, who folks might remember from House of Cards, um, is this Upper West Side, um, young, married, slash in the process of separating uh, Jewish woman in New York in the 1950s, who realizes that after, now that she has to figure out a life for herself, because she's, her marriage is falling apart, she's going to become a stand-up comic. Oh, as one does in the 50s. Um, well, as a Jewish you know, housewife from the Upper West Side. <laughs> uh, so I, I will say it probably plays to my particular sensibilities a little more strongly than it plays oh, to yours. Pretty, that's a pretty good funny premise. And, um, uh, you know. But it's, it's hysterical. It's Amy Sherman Palladino, who, of course, wrote Gilmore Girls. Okay. Um, the dialogue's fantastic. The jokes are funny. Well, it's a great, you know, it's a great the, actor. Too, those of so. you who are looking for a new show because you finished season two of The Crown and Elizabeth is still the queen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. Come on. Um, uh, only seen one episode. Allow me to recommend the the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. All right. Well, I'll have, I'll have something to say in the in the TV genre later. Uh, okay. But uh, back to now. back to back to actual national security law in Abu Qatala. Okay. So as a reminder, who was Abu Qatala? Abu Qatala was the first uh, of now two persons uh, who've come into U.S. custody, who we who we captured in Libya, brought out through the hybrid detention model, where they are in military custody for a transit period. Uh, first with a non-Miranda-based interrogation, then an FBI clean team comes in, and then they end up in federal civilian court in the United States, in D.C. Uh, Abu Qatala charged in connection with the uh, Benghazi uh, attacks uh, in 2012 and the, and the deaths involved there. And, and Steve, long and short of it is, uh, it was a mixed verdict. Uh, he was convicted on a material support charge and some, some other similar charges, but was acquitted 
in all respects relating to actual like uh, the murder charges and the conspiracy resulting in death and and those types of death focused charges and and this is uh i think do you think this is similar to the katani outcome in new york you mean uh, gailani gailani i'm sorry did i say katani you did i did okay i meant gailani um, Proof that we don't actually go back and edit out our goofs on this. On this. <laughs> I think that's been amply proven. <laughs> um, so can you can you give us that backdrop? Because I think that adds, that helps us understand why we should care about the particular outcome. Sure. So Ahmed Kalfan Gailani was the one Guantanamo. So you know you're just showing off with the name. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbing my face in it. Listen, we all know, if you've listened, this is episode 50, okay? By now, folks have figured out that, that I get by with memory, whereas you get by with actual intelligence and analytical <laughs> that, uh, skills. I get by with uh, with humor and, and good singing. Looks. That's yeah, it. And that's it. That's, that's, that's right. That singing voice is what's gotten you to this point in your legal career. This is why we've joined forces. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, Ahmed Kalfan Gailani was uh, the one Guantanamo detainee who was transferred into the U.S. to stand trial on criminal charges, mostly charges arising out of his role in the 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. Um, I think there were, Bobby, well over 250-some-odd counts right, in the indictment each, against each him. Each individual death was separately charged. Um, and the jury the jury returned a legally impossible verdict, right? The jury returned a verdict where he was acquitted on all but one count. Um, now, the one count was actually quite a serious count. He was still sentenced to a very long prison sentence. It was he got quite, life, right? Uh, I believe it was life, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right, so, so, but the jury, I mean, the problem is there was no way the jury could have found the elements and facts requisite to establish the one count he was convicted of without finding some of the other counts as well. So I think most observers looked at the Gailani um, near acquittal, as it was often characterized yeah. in the press, as a classic sort of compromise verdict where the jury did not want to let this bad guy go free, but also wasn't completely convinced by either the government's evidence or, as in Gailani's case, could very well have been possible, concerns about government um, dirty hands with regard to treatment of Gailani, right, course of interrogation, et cetera. And so this became a political football. And uh, those who want to— Wait, what? Uh, imagine that. Those who would like to uh, see uh, detainees in terrorism cases steered towards military commissions or enemy combatant detention would say, ah, see, look, what a near miss. This could have been disastrous. Don't use that system anymore. Near miss. We're back to George Carlin. Right. Oh, look, they nearly missed. <laughs> they nearly missed. And uh, the uh, the other side saying, look, you know, at the end of the day, even in, a, in an extremely difficult case, it still worked. Um, I would say it didn't really have legs as a criticism. Right, it didn't really pick up steam. You don't still see people saying, "Remember, don't put people into civilian criminal justice because there was that time that this right. guy almost got acquitted, but then got a life sentence." Right? I think the end result was enough to keep that, uh, and that plus the fact that there's so many other cases in civilian court. Yep. There, there are so many of these cases, and they almost always result in a conviction in a, in a lengthy sentence. And, and I mean, so so, and even if you have the more cynical view, and I don't, I mean, I, I think I share everything you just, I, I agree everything, with everything you just said. You know, the fact that Gailani was acquitted on all but one count, I think is is a miss, doesn't accurately convey that it was close, right? And it, right, that, like, it's, it's quite clear to me that the jury um, was sending a message in the verdict. Right. And that, that doesn't mean they almost let him go. Right, it doesn't mean they almost let him go. I mean, right, that, that part of the message was, we are not going to let this guy go, right? Right. But we also are not going to, you know, give the government sort of a, a, a clean sheet. Right, that's right. That's exactly right. And so, wh so why does Katala matter? So Katala comes along, and I think it matters because it's – because of the notoriety and the uh, the inflamed opinions surrounding Benghazi all around, it had the potential, had it gone terribly wrong for the government, to become another one of these political footballs and one that has 
maybe a bigger impact on the debate between military detention and military commissions versus the civilian outlets. Um, and therefore, the fact that it, too, came down in a divided way, it, you know, it's another somewhat close call. Again, in, at the end of the day, the, the guy hasn't been sentenced yet. He's right. going to be sentenced sometime in early 2018. And that'll be one of the interesting questions is whether Judge Cooper takes into account any of the sort of closeness, the, the apparent yeah. closeness of the verdict. I, I would not wager on a on a uh, merciful uh, sentence here. No. I, in fact, I expect to see if four of the counts he was convicted on, I would predict you see the you know, maximum sentences stacked. This guy's not ever going to walk free, I suspect. Now, what actually went, went down is pretty interesting because thanks to Spencer Shoes' reporting in the Washington Post, we actually have a pretty good sense. We have an inside perspective. A couple of the jurors, there's an anonymous jury for their security's sake, but um, telling you something about that level of security, the, the Post was able to figure it out and reach out to a couple of people. And they explained how they at least perceived what went down. And this is interesting. Uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from his article. Uh, one juror uh, later explained that the prosecutor, quote, spent a lot of time on emotional appeals that kind of fell flat to us when we already knew the gravity of the case. And then this juror added, quote, we were shocked that they didn't set up the timeline of events as much for us, including the whereabouts of the actual defendant. And, and that's the end of that quote. Um, the whole thing, Steve, was it, it was very clear from the evidence that Katala did arrive on scene at least after the attack was underway, at the, the first wave of the attack, before things moved over to the CIA annex later on. Uh, and he participated in the attack. The jurors uh, were uh, able and willing to convict him for his involvement in the attack at that stage. The prosecution's case had been that Katala was an organizer, an orchestrator, and was involved in this from the beginning, and therefore wasn't just among the crowd that, that piled in with, it, with him and his friends. And the jurors felt that that wasn't proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And they said that, you know, there was no timeline. The evidence didn't really support this. And here's where it gets really interesting. There was evidence that implicated Katala in the planning stages. There were three Libyan citizens who testified under pseudonyms, right? So uh, sort of a, you know, this mask the identity for their safety's sake type of procedure that we see from time to time in these international or national security complex cases, and the jury didn't credit him. And and specifically, the, at least the one juror who spoke to Spencer um, pointed out that the informants were paid, quote, as much as $7 million by the U.S. government for their cooperation, close quote, plus expenses. And, and then apparently the defense also succeeded in bringing out that there were personal animosities yep. between these uh, witnesses and Katala. Um, and so the jury didn't credit those, whereas they did credit, you know, you might then say, like, what was the inculpatory evidence once they were discredited? Um, the pre and I think, no, the post Miranda clean team interrogation statements to the FBI during the hybrid detention phase where Katala implicated himself. So what should you take away from all this? Well, it shows you the complexity of getting uh, persuasive uh, rules of evidence admissible uh, a, a case built up. And in this case, the critical fact was that the court was willing to admit the interrogation statements from the clean team in the post-interrogation phase. And critical to that, of course, is the fact that Katala was, in fact, willing to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And that ends up being the basis for his own conviction. Yeah, I mean, I, I continue to think that as in Gailani, the far more important legal implications of these cases are not the verdicts or even the sentences, 
but all of the pretrial rulings. Yes, exactly right? so. Um, with regard to what the government may and may not do when it captures an individual overseas, with regard to timing, we've talked before about the slow boat problem in the Abu Qatala case, right, with regard to speedy trial and Gailani, that those are in, in many ways much more important from the perspective of shaping and or constraining government options in future cases than the actual verdict that comes out once the case-specific evidence is presented to a jury of, of, 12, of 12 citizens. I think that's right. And so, so you see here, as, as we saw in Gailani, uh, these pretrial rulings do provide these necessary conditions for these cases and for the hybrid model to work at all. Uh, certainly in this case, if Katala had just refused to ever right. say anything, yep. Uh, they they wouldn't have been able to convict him, and that would have presented a very different prospect, a very mm-hmm. difficult situation indeed. Uh, all right, enough about that. Should we move on to the Mueller investigation? Oh, the Mueller investigation. Now, Bobby, there's a great conspiracy, and we need to lock everybody up. Oh, <laughs> oh this, ought, this ought to be good. What what is it? <laughs> no, so I, I had the I had the pleasure of appearing. Um, last night on the the Wayne Allen Root Show, okay. which is apparently a, a very popular conservative um, talk radio show. I'm so out of Las pleased Vegas. you're appearing on a conservative outlet. Um, well, I, I, I'm not sure if they knew what they were getting when they when they invited me on the show. But so <laughs> so basically, the the first question was why shouldn't there be a special counsel for Hillary? Um, right? Did you um, know you were going to get questions like that? Not really. Oh, um, I really want to find the audio and, and circulate then, this. And then there were questions about like. Um, how can we trust anyone at the FBI when these people are, you know, contributing to Democratic candidates and expressing support for Democratic policy initiatives? Did and, they ask you about UFOs? Um, we did not quite, although we didn't get to UFOs, although apparently the DOD is now releasing these videotapes of, like, encounters with UFOs off the California coast in 2004. <laughs> so uh, that did not come up on the radio show. That's funny. That oh, was just on CNN you. this morning. Oh, okay, good. All right, so you, I'm, I'm definitely going to, find and listen to you answering oh, questions gosh. like this because I can't wait to hear the soft shoe routine you must have gone into at that point. Mm. So uh, what happened here? Uh, Corey Langhofer, a lawyer at a, a firm called Statecraft, where both the A's and Statecraft are, are drawn <laughs> without the crossbar, kind of looking like lambdas. I don't I don't get it. Um, I guess it's, do you think, what do you think the deal with that is? Is that supposed to look Roman? Uh, I, it's, it's, it's just, uh, maybe it's supposed to provoke us into just trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, it's true. Hey, it's good advertising. It's no, good. no, stop. Move it's on. got us talking about it. So anyways, Corey Langhofer is the lawyer who, uh, I guess, represents uh, the the private nonprofit organization that is or was the presidential transition process. And so this is interesting, right? This this entity question of what's the nature of a presidential transition team? Is it is that a governmental entity? Is it a purely private entity? There clearly is an incorporated nonprofit, it's a 501c3, I guess, called Trump for America, and that's the doing business as name for um, the transition team. So I'm just going to call it the transition team, mm-hmm. right? And Corey Langhoffer's their lawyer, uh, and he's mad. He, over the weekend, I guess on Saturday, sent to uh, the oversight committees in the House and Senate, their leadership, a letter complaining about, quote, unlawful conduct by general services administration employees. Of course, this doesn't get reported that way. It gets reported as by the Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. No, uh, accusation of unlawful conduct by GSA employees who produced transition team emails in response to a request 
of some undetermined nature from the special counsel's office. Steve, uh, why did the General Services Administration have any transition team emails? Well, because the transition team emails were on the GSA server, um, mm. right? I mean, so so it's worth noting, you know, Bobby, you and I probably have both had the, the fortune or misfortune of corresponding with folks on transition teams in the past. Not me. Nobody, nobody seeks my never? opinion about anything. You've never gotten a PTT.gov email? Uh, no, I'm fascinated. Tell oh. me more. So there is a whole sort of domain called PTT.gov. PTT stands for Presidential Transition Team. Um, and, you know, there are a series of – I mean, we've talked before in the context of the Logan Act. And by the way, you said .gov. .gov. Yeah. Well, so, that, so that's going to come into – that's going to matter, dear listeners. Um, so we've talked <laughs> that's before – That's called heavy foreshadowing. Indeed. We've talked before about how Congress has increasingly given – presidential transitions more and more vestiges of what we might say quasi-official authority, um, right? That includes access to government facilities and includes access to government infrastructure. And Bobby, it includes access to government emails. Right. And the GSA is, by, by according to the Presidential uh, Transitions Act of 1963, this is all GSA's job. You yes. provide offices, you provide phones, you provide laptops, you provide servers that sustain an email service right. with, I guess, this PPT.gov. Right. And, uh, and here's the thing about a .gov email account, right? Anyone who's ever had a .gov email account will tell you that one of the things that happens when you get a .gov email account is the provider of said .gov email account, make sure that you know that your .gov emails are not yours. Um, and that's not a function of sort of common understanding or practice. That's a matter of federal law, right? That emails that are sent and received to .gov addresses that are stored on .gov servers are physically the property of the United States government. Now, Langhofer says... He was told different by the top lawyer at GSA. Claims that he was told that these are going to be private. You're you're a private non nonprofit entity. We're just supporting you with a .gov email address. With the docket, nonetheless, but also a, a, a whatever the equivalent in the physical world of .gov is a government physical address, right? right? But that doesn't make you a, a government entity. So he says he was told, rest assured, this will all be kept uh, quiet. That lawyer, I believe, has gone public saying, I never said right. that. Right. So we have a fact dispute, of yeah. course. Although, I mean, I, I think it's worth stressing that that anyone in that position could have easily, if there was any confusion, the law itself, I think, is fairly clear on this point. Well, it gets interesting. We're going to talk more about the Fourth Amendment implications uh, of if we assume for the sake of argument that Langhoffer's got it right, that he that they were told by the top GSA person that these are your private emails, you know, you've got privacy in them. Maybe there's some implications there. But at any rate, um, we don't know precisely how the special counsel's office requested the emails. But at some point, they did go to GSA, not they didn't go to the transition team. They didn't go to Corey Langhoff or anyone mm -hmm. else. They went to GSA and said, oh, you know, <laughs> I, it's our understanding. You have a, a huge trove of the emails from the transition. Here are the people we need to see the accounts from. And they got a dump of, of the content of all these emails. Once it becomes apparent to the Trump folks that this has happened, that's what precipitates this this public, uh, you know, denunciation. And, of course, I think we both understand there's a, there's a larger political game here. And, and we could go on and on analyzing the, the merits and demerits of trying to delegitimize uh, the investigation in various ways. Let's set that aside and just try to look at this as a, as a legal matter. Is there something potentially wrong either under the Fourth Amendment as a matter of executive privilege, as a matter of the Presidential Transition Act, or maybe the Stored Communications Act? So let's, let's walk through those four possibilities. Totally. Yeah, okay. Um, Fourth Amendment. So I guess the the, the 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 big question here is 
the pri is the is the privacy piece of it, right? Like, was it reasonable for an individual who's part of the presidential, presidential transition to believe that he or she had a reasonable expectation of privacy in email sent and received on a .gov server, right? Um, and I guess my sort of gut reaction is usually no. Yeah, it's kind of my reaction as well. Now, I I was given some pause. Orrin Kerr yes. had a post at Lawfare this morning that was it was really handy as just sort of a walkthrough. Um, it's it's a classic Orrin Kerr sort of like look here's a, here's all these cases are actually super relevant. That yes, all of a sudden you may Orin, not have heard of. All of a sudden, Orrin is a super libertarian. Oh, I think Orrin's Orrin has definitely been a libertarian. Not not okay on 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 access to stored electronic information. Look, I think his email his post at Lawfare is best read as you're saying. Look, here's a bunch of the relevant law. Right. Could be this. Okay. Could be so, that. So so the best defense right of 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 the sort of Trump transition team's complaints per Oren's post, yeah. is that if, in fact, they were told that the emails were private, that the yeah. .gov servers were private, right, then under the Ninth Circuit's decision in this case called Quan, Q-U-O-N, right. you know, there's at least some subjective protection. It's against, at least up for grabs. Right. Now, it's worth stressing, the Quan opinion was an opinion by Judge Kim Wardlaw, joined by Harry Pragerson, um, two judges who are routinely um, lambasted, right, by anyone to the right of me, right, for having overly um, liberal and protective and ridiculous Fourth Amendment views. Certainly won't keep the Trump transition team from citing that case here if it comes to that. But 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 there's a but so what that means is that even if you buy that the relevant government GSA official provided incorrect instructions, mm -hmm. right, to Ling, to to Corey Langhofer, right, to and and that that's what's behind all of this. The only way that even that gets you to a Fourth Amendment problem. Is, you, is if you accept the discredited analysis of a liberal Ninth Circuit opinion. It hasn't been discredited. Um, I mean, I mean it's, certainly, it's certainly an outlier. I think that's clear. So it's an outlier. It's yeah. been heavily criticized by other courts and by academic commenta commentators. The Supreme Court um, basically ran a rough shot over it. They didn't reverse it. They found other grounds in Quan to rule in that case. Didn't reverse it. They didn't reverse it. But, I mean, I just, all I'm saying is the best possible scenario to defend what happened here from the perspective of the Trump team's allegations requires reading a very... Uh, um, extreme, right, Ninth Circuit opinion for all it's worth. I, I'm actually in agreement with you in the characterization of it. So it's interesting, though, that there's, I, I will say this, there was more to it. I certainly did. I didn't know about Quan. I didn't realize that was the case, at least in the Ninth Circuit. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fascinating to see that, you know, you could actually perhaps restore some degree of reasonable expectation of privacy through this kind of representation model, at least if it's, you know. But can I, just, can I say one thing just to, to yeah. sort of drive on why I'm so pissed off about this? <laughs> yes. Right. That theory of privacy means all of the emails Hillary had on her private server at home were also private. Right. Um, even if they even if they involve the transaction of official business. And so for all the people who are so up in arms about Hillary's emails. Right. The theory of privacy that you have to embrace in order to believe that the, that Mueller somehow um, implicated the privacy rights of the Trump transition team would in turn, I think, defend. Right. Um, the privacy of the emails that Secretary Clinton used a private server for. Well, I'm not. I'm not interested in going down the rabbit hole of Hillary's <laughs> emails. However, I'm not sure I see quite where the analogy there is. There's, there's not a request for government production to Hillary of sure her there emails. Was. Sure there was. 
Uh, what, right. what do you have? Uh, maybe I'm thinking. I'm thinking about the the hacking of her her so server. There was hacking, what? but there was also right the various congressional committees that requested the emails. I mean, right the the right. I think it was what one of the committees. I think wanted all the emails off the private servers that might possibly related to classified information. Okay, I when, I thought you were talking about the hacking situation. No, no, the hacking the is insecurity different. My, of her my home point, server. No, the, the hacking is fine. I mean, that's not yeah. fine. But <laughs> hacking is a Aha. right. The Russian chill. My point is just that I think you have to be consistent in your theory of privacy here, right? Um, why are the text messages, for example, of Peter Strzok, right, and the other, I don't remember his, other, his name, right, the other, you know, FBI agent who was kicked off the Mueller investigation, right. why are those appropriately the subject of public inquiry? I mean, right. Well, the Trump people are saying, look, we're a private organization. We, but they weren't. We're told, we, they're saying we are a private, nonprofit, right, 501c3 so, uh, that has support from the government right. in the form of offices and other things. But we still have reasonable expectations of privacy. So, Bobby, if they were, were private, not like if government they, if agents. they were a private organization, why didn't they violate the Logan Act? Right. I mean, I've been, I've been um, rather, I think, um, you know, mono, monochromatic. Right. Well, you're assuming that the individuals and the organization have to all be fully private. Or fully public. Can it not be the case that the transition organization is fully private for this purpose, mm-hmm. but Mike Flynn is the national security advisor designate? And I'm, I'm just playing yeah. devil's advocate so here. So listen, but- if Mike Flynn is sending an email from, you know, generalflynn at hotmail.com, right, and he's doing it in his capacity as a member of the transition team and not holding any office in the United States, that to me is a different kettle of fish than if Mike Flynn is sending an email address from, you know, um, National Security Advisor designate at PTT.gov, because the latter to me smacks of all the reasons why I've argued that the Logan Act doesn't apply to a presidential transition. Right. Well, so this leads us directly to the executive privilege issue, because right. the the more we the more we push the transition team model into the look, you're effectively working off of government servers. You're effectively a quasi government entity. You're not really private. You don't have the same expectations of privacy. The more that arguably bolsters the claim um, by Langhofer that, oh, by the way, at least some of these communications uh, perhaps implicated executive privilege, which most people react immediately saying, how can that be? Were you, was this an Obama? President Obama was the president then. He was the executive. You weren't the executive then. How could there be executive privilege during the transition? But is there some kind of quasi-executive privilege for the incoming executive if all these things you're saying are true about how the transition itself is a quasi-governmental entity. So first, first, let's just say no one's ever said there is, right? So, so this would be a novel. It's a, it's a first impression. Okay. Um, second, I think it's worth stressing where the authority comes from. The executive privilege that a president has, according to the Supreme Court, comes from Article Two, mm-hmm. right? It comes from the president's constitutional power as chief executive, yada, 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 mm-hmm. see U.S. versus Nixon, 1974, all right? All of the authority that a transition team has doesn't come from the Constitution. It comes from statutes, right? And so I would argue, if pressed, that Congress by statute could create a privilege, that Congress by statute could imbue transition teams with de facto authority of the United States for purposes of the Logan Act. Indeed, they perhaps have, right? That Congress by statute could do lots of things to treat um, transition teams as sort of effective holders of the offices that they're about to occupy. But because that all is a matter of statute, right, I think the question has to be not whether Article 2 provides a sort of president-elect privilege, right, um, but whether Congress by statute has extended the constitutional privilege to context where it doesn't apply a fortiori. So it's clear that Congress hasn't done that in this case. I actually think it's very interesting to contemplate the status of the president-elect 
once once it's clear, once the Electoral College has acted, yeah. and this person is, in fact, the president-elect, do they not have some kind of constitutional status? There's only one president. There's only one executive. But is there not some implication that I don't the president-elect so. has some, some quality? Here's a question for our common law exams, right? Um, so I don't think so, and here's why, right? The Constitution does not refer to a president-elect. Right? There's no such thing as the office of president-elect. The Constitution, it's not an office. Right? The Constitution creates this lame-duck period between when the, the you know, electors vote right, and when right. the president is inaugurated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says absolutely nothing about the status of anybody yeah. during that period. You're John Doe. You're John Q. Citizen, Jane Q. Citizen, right. until, until the day of the inauguration. So, for example, if on January 18th there was some kind of decapitation attack, Right, that went after the existing administration. Right, the president-elect could not be advanced to president. Yeah, there would still be the succession. Right, until yeah. noon on January twentieth. Yeah. So I guess my, this is my reaction. Right, I have no problem with Congress, as Bobby increasingly has, looking at presidential, presidential transitions as worthy of some kind of quasi-official protection and status. Right, but it's got to be by statute. It's got to be by statute because otherwise you are conflating. You know, the constitutional – how can you have a unitary executive if you have two different people with constitutional authority? No doubt. Well, clear, no question that if, if there is some sort of penumbra, to coin a phrase, <laughs> if there's some sort of penumbral Article Two, you know, benefits that flow towards the president-elect, it cannot, cannot in any way right. – I have to say, it, Trump, the, <laughs> the authority of the incumbent in the in-office individual. And that's, that's why, obvious. And, that, and, that's that's obvious. A, and that's why I think the right lens through which to assess this whole universe of questions about the legal authority of transition teams, about the privacy rights of transition teams, about all of that is statutory. Okay, what about the so forget executive privilege? What there? It wouldn't surprise me at all to know that there are some genuine attorney-client communications mm-hmm. on those emails. There's bound to be. Um, and GSA doesn't do it. Let's put it this way. If, if, yep. if, uh, if I run a company and yep. we get a, a, any kind of request for production um, and it's about our papers, we are going to screen before we produce. Right. It, it just standard practice. You're going to remove the privileged material. GSA doesn't do anything like that. They don't notify the, the Trump transition team that this request has come in. Do you guys want to do any screening? Instead, it's all just dumped without any privilege screening. That. That does seem problematic. It just as a matter of policy, that's no way to set it up. There, there seems like there ought to have been some notification so that they could have done the privilege screening. Yeah, although I don't, you know, we don't know exactly what notifications and communications did transpire. I mean, right? The, I think a spokesperson for the Mueller team said we complied with all relevant and applicable legal processes. You know, we don't know what that means. <laughs> we have no idea what that means. But right? you know, I mean, listen. I, I guess I just I would I would. This is not something where they're going to sort of not be careful, right? And so I just before we jump to conclusions, I just well, I trust I trust. That the Mueller team's careful. Right. It's GSA that perhaps. G- right. Careful no, no, here. of course. But but so, you know, listen, we also, Bobby, are both familiar with situations where someone has turned over stuff they shouldn't have turned over. Oh, yeah. And a responsible recipient, right, has actually segregated that material appropriately. Right? Because the because whatever the law is, ethics rules, right? I, require I think, that. I think it's it's fair. I, I realize I'm playing the devil's advocate here, uh, <laughs> defending the Trump transition, you know, position. I'm I'm really not impressed at all with anything they're saying here, but I, I think it's important to work out where the the weaker and stronger parts of their mm-hmm. argument are. And I think the single strongest thing in there is that we don't normally rely on the other parties involved to do all the screening for you. Right. If it, if it's reasonable to have a system where you could have done the screening. I mean, the normal the normal posture should be you do the screening, and if you need to move to quash, you can. And and this seems like there's a gap there. That's we've fine, but but then but then right. I mean, let's be clear what we've just sort of reduced this to. If there's any problem, right, in the sort of 
um, handing over of emails from GSA to the Mueller team. It is not a problem with the handing over in the abstract, right? It's a problem with regard to those specific emails within that large subset that may be protected by attorney-client privilege. So let's keep going because there's a couple more we need to run through. The The place where Langhofer's letter actually hangs its hat for the most part yep. is on the Presidential Transi- Transitions Act, uh, 3 U.S. Code 102. That's just nut. This is great. You, I love this stuff. You, you won't actually find the Transition Act there. You have to you have to go to the notes. This yep. is one of those, and maybe you can explain this to me. I've never really understood it. Um, statutes get passed. They end up getting codified so you can find them in the right sort of subject matter area. But every now and then, stuff doesn't get codified with its own number right. or even its own number it's just, plus it's just, a letter. It's added as a, as a, it, as a revision note. It's, it's, just, it's just like, hey, if you need to find this, it's in 3 U.S. Code 102. Go notes. to the notes. And if you, if you search for it online, it's easier. Click on notes. Then you got to scroll down. And then eventually, you'll find this huge block of text yeah. that reprints the yeah. act. So, so, so we, we, we can have a longer conversation some other time when there's less to talk about about the fantastic power of the Office of the Law Revision Council. Yes, yes. Um, the Let keeper you, of the code. These people got under my skin in a bad way when they were <laughs> when they went for no Title reason. 50? Yes, they revised all the covert uh, action and intelligence oversight numbers, which are hard enough to keep track of, but everybody kind of committed yep. them to memory. Yep. And then they just sort of like gave us a bunch of new numbers to work with. Why? Yep. Well, this is like when, when Congress enacted the Torture Victim Protection Act of 1991, uh-huh. right? Instead of creating a whole new section of the U.S. Code, they tacked it on as a note to the Alien Tort Statute. Yes. Right? Why? I okay. know. Okay. So, anyway. The Presidential Transition Act, the relevant language. By, by the way, come back up. This, yeah. doesn't, this doesn't change the force of law, right? I mean, things Oh, are, yeah. No, right? this is, this just, it just makes it hard to find. That's right. Okay. Okay. Section H2B, Romanet 2, <laughs> H2B2, sounds like a visa deal. H2B2 provides the... <laughs> nice. Um, by the way, haven't seen... Nor I. Okay. I'm going uh, tomorrow night. Heather and I are going. I'm jealous. Can I come? Uh, well, we got to review it. So go yeah. make you have a mission. Okay. Um, okay. H2B2 provides that the General Services Administrator, quote, shall, as appropriate, ensure that any computers or communication services provided to an eligible candidate under the subsection are secure. Langhoffer says, hello, secure, as in don't give the contents to other people. Um, is he reading too much into that language, are secure? I, mean, I, I would think so. I think that that's a requirement that the government just takes steps to protect the communications from sort of um, inappropriate access and disclosure. Well, that kind of begs the question, right? Is this an appropriate access or... Well, so, I, I mean, you know, when the government says it's securing, right, uh, 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 an email server, does that mean it's securing it from the Justice Department if the Justice Department is pursuing a lawful investigative demand? Again, we'll see that. Okay, so that brings us to the question. Did they have a lawful so, investigative demand? So, and we're back to, and, you know, and there's no, and here's the thing, right? Mueller's team has said everything they obtained, they obtained through appropriate legal process. We don't know what that is. Right. We do. We ought to find out. But they have said it, right? So here's the interesting thing. Here's where it all kind of stitches together. If the Fourth Amendment does not apply, which I think we agree it probably, there probably isn't, it applies. There's not a reasonable expectation of privacy here, though there's a little bit of this friction we talked about. If it doesn't apply, then the only thing that would prohibit the GSA from voluntarily turning it over, A, Langhofer says, look, the Transition Act says you're going to keep our stuff secure. That alone should be a limitation. Eh, I don't know how persuasive that is. What about the Stored Communications Act? If we were talking about regular private right. discovery, right. The, the, the whole idea is 
insofar as the Fourth Amendment isn't doing the work to protect your uh, remotely stored or third-party stored electronic communications, well, Congress has stepped in to provide protections in, uh, in 18 U.S. Code uh, 2701 at Sequitur. Now, this is where it gets down the weeds. I love this stuff. 2702, Section 2702 of the Stored Communications Act, that deals with restraints on these third parties voluntarily yep. turning stuff over. And then Section 2703 regulates the process of mandatory disclosure, where they have to do it whether they want to or not. Now, I think here it's probably, based on what we've seen, not a mandatory disclosure situation, though it could be. Oren points out that we don't know. There, there might have been some mandate. But in any event, let's assume that this was just a letter request and so it was a voluntary disclosure situation. What does 2702 have to say in that scenario? Well, there's a nice little in the weeds kind of catch here. 2702 creates all these rules that limit when, say, your cable company, when, when AT&T U-verse can turn over something. But um, this, in, this involves providers of electronic uh, um, communication services or remote computing services that provide services to the public. Mm-hmm. To the public right. is the key word. It's just in 2702. It's not in 2703, interestingly. But we're concerned here with 2702. And GSA, though clearly providing electronic communication services to the transition team, does not provide those services to the public. Mm. So I think it's just categorically inapplicable unless I'm unless I'm just mistaken. I think that's right, too. All right. So I think that just drops out. And so all the transition team is left with is the Hail Mary on yep. the Fourth Amendment. And failing that... Uh, Judge Wardlaw will save us. <laughs> yeah, the Judge Wardlaw episode, episode title. Judge Wardlaw's yeah. Ward, is Wardlaw the name in the uh, Where's Waldo? The the second guy that has oh, the reverse colors. Anyways, I have to say I have, I have a I have a lot. I mean, Judge Wardlaw gets a bum rap. I have a lot of respect and admiration. Oh, I'm not. Her. I'm not. I actually think it's quite interesting. Um, so there's the Hail Mary, the Wardlaw Hail Mary that could bail them out. That's probably not going to work. Otherwise, it's the Presidential Transitions Act our secure language, which is being asked to bear a lot of weight here yes. that it probably can't. Yes. All right. Anything else to say about that? I, I'm embarrassed that we said as much as we did. <laughs> Hopefully it's a good public service for those who want to get down in the weeds and understand it. So, I, I, yes, indeed. Public service, good. Okay. By the way, I'm embarrassed that we said as much as we did, and that may have to be the title of the podcast. I'm embarrassed that we said as much as we did. Yeah. There we go. Uh, all right. So um, we can wrap up the substantive elements here by just noting two things we that keep watching. That haven't happened. Yeah. The shoes that haven't dropped. The shoes that haven't Actually, uh, that's an even better title. Um, especially if you make a play on Spencer's last name. The, the shoes. Spencer's. The, the Spencer shoes this that haven't dropped. getting too complex. <laughs> all right. Section 702. It's only got two weeks left and So it apparently, I just saw a note on Politico um, oh. while we were sitting here that apparently there's some measure on some calendar for today to do a six-month bump. Six-month bump. Clean bump. Clean, clean six-month bump. We'll, you know, figure, we'll figure it out You know what's months. awesome about that? What? We just get to have the first half of 2018 continuing to talk about oh, this. Oh, gosh. Maybe at some point we'll actually have a serious national conversation about surveillance reform. I think we've been having it. I just think that yeah. right now they're not actually acting on the fruits of that conversation, but we're going to get to do that again in 2018, looks like. All right, so um, one way or another, they're going to do it before Friday. Looks, um, like it, looks likely. There's a, there's a train that has to leave the station shortly. If this doesn't go out today, they do have to do a, uh, a temporary funding measure for the government to yep. keep it from closing down over the holidays. Yep. 
So it's going to get extended. ACLU v. Mattis. That, that, oh man. Okay, so here we are. It's now been eight days since the last hearing on the government's, on all the Michigas about whether Judge Chutkin has the power to order limited jurisdictional discovery. Which was itself a follow-on hearing based on the initial hearing. Yes. So two rounds of briefing, oh, two hearings. So, I mean, it's, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to impugn Judge Chutkin, who has been quite busy. If you've been following the wacky, and at least to my, to my view, deeply troubling litigation over the Department of Health and Human Services, efforts to deny access to abortions to two immigrant women um, who are seeking abortions, Bobby, who are detained in states in which they are lawfully entitled to pursue an abortion at this phase of their pregnancy, whatever. Um, she's been quite busy handling that litigation. She wrote a, she had, I think there was an order just last night from her in that case. But come on, people. But, but do you, I don't know this. Uh, the order, was it just an order or did she write a big, long opinion? I think there was, I think there was a TRO uh, that was issued last night. Um, and I think it was a, sh- a relatively short opinion with the TRO. Yeah, so this is really no excuse in turn. That may be a high profile case, but if unless she's been drafting some massive opinion that's been taking up all her time, uh, it does seem like the clocks continue to tick. And again, and I would like to think that federal judges can you know walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, you know, last week y- you were coming down pretty hard on her, I saying was. that she wasn't showing a sufficient sense of urgency, and I was saying it's a little premature for that. Um, I'm with you now. Come on, you, look, you, everyone is with me now. This isn't gonna be. This isn't gonna be the last word on this no. question. If she if she denies the jurisdictional discovery. And then presumably she's going to deny right. uh, the ability of the ACLU to continue to that goes right to that goes right to the DC Circuit right and we need to just get order, on with that right right and if she grants it I mean you know you have a theory that she could certify it for appeal um, there's long, at least going to be litigation right, over that long time listener first time caller James Sullivan has a theory that it could James. actually be construed as a um, mandatory injunctive like order that could be directly appealable under 1292A1 they're certainly going to they can present both those theories right. and so either way this this is just the start. Right. We got to go ahead and get. So what are we waiting for? Stage. I agree. Um, I just want to point out that I, I think I have brought just about everybody over to the camp of you should be alarmed. We should be moving faster. Come on, people. So for what it's worth, I would say I haven't. I, I haven't moved your camp. The my <laughs> position has always been that with the passage of time, our camps have merged. Gets, the passage of time has brought us together. Matt, Maddie, my my twenty three month old daughter, um, has picked up one bad habit from me already. Um, <laughs> what is which that? is um, when we're driving somewhere and, and and she decides that we've been stopped for too long, she'll just say, "Come on, people." <laughs> That also I have, I have comp- no idea. I have no idea where she got it. That's from. also a competitor. It actually could be much worse. Oh, oh, it could be much worse. <laughs> Listen, um, I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad that I've, I've, you know, started modulating my language in the yeah. car. Yeah, the kids are good for that. Um, you, you realize you, how you behave. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a test of character. Yeah. If character. If, if character is like what you do when you don't think people are watching. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. your, your kids are watching. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, enough seriousness. Let's close out. We only have a little bit of time left. We got to keep it short today. Um, Frivolity. Frivolity. Movie soundtracks. All-time great movie soundtracks. Yeah. Um, so, so I want to go back to my defining criteria. So, right. so by movie soundtracks, I understand you to be saying songs with words, right? I think it's one category, but I also want to have a separate category for, for the orchestral stuff. Okay, so, so soundtracks and scores are different in your view. Okay, we'll see right? that. And you mean where the soundtrack is original to the movie or just where the soundtrack, or or all things are, all things go. Let's do this. Let's first do the symphonic orchestral okay. stuff, which is okay. sort of separate. Then we'll get to the stuff with straight up songs, okay. and we'll talk about originality. So and, Star Wars is its own category, right? All right. Okay. So it goes. I, I'm obviously. Uh, I think John Williams <laughs> takes 
top honors historically. It, 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 I don't know that this could be improved upon. Um, do you have any opinions about the variation in the uh, John Williams stuff from movie to movie within the series? Within the Star Wars sequence? Yeah. Well, I mean, like most things, I think Empire is the best. Yeah, I mean, um, Empire added the, the Imperial March. The Imperial I think March is, is from Empire. Yeah, right. Uh, the Imperial March is from Empire. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Leia's theme, I think, is from Empire. Um, right. Um, oh no, Yoda's theme is from Yoda's, Empire. Yoda, certainly, right. Um, Couldn't right. be from. And the finale of uh, the finale of Empire, I actually think, is you know, right? Oh, like that the, kind of wistful sort of when yeah. they're on the ship, right? Yeah. When and they're like, "What happens now?" Yeah, yeah I yeah. promise I wouldn't sing, but there I did. There, so, I knew I could draw I you out. So, so if we're doing just the John Williams of, right? Yeah, yeah. I will, I will submit Empire as as the best score. So I, I, I think I can't put I can't put Empire over New Hope just because of the sh- the shocking amazingness and originality of the and the binary sunset just everything about that yeah. so so I go I go with New Hope but Empire Strikes Back and really they go together um, I, I I'd have to put Indiana Jones in a that's pretty wonderful pretty iconic. Uh, do you have any others that you feel are so in that same one, sort of yes. tier? I mean, so I'm going to throw out there just as a random, you know, um, I am a really big fan of the scores to Gladiator, which is otherwise a, a hard-to-defend movie on its sort oh, of... Oh, like, but it's fun. It's fun. But the score, I think, is really remarkable. And also a bit sort of wackier. Um, you know the Matthew McConaughey movie Interstellar? Mm-hmm. So what I love about that score is that it's not a class... It's not like this conventional... Like you know, powerful big orchestra thing. It's actually a much more subtle, interesting. So I like that movie. I can't say the score left an impression on me, but now I got to go back and listen. Of so course, I, you I, and I should both like that movie because it ultimately is a, it's just a father daughter story. Well, it's, we and, and we are we are both Abuel but not. Um, there you go. So I mean, right? That and so the, the what Gladiator and Intercell have in common is those are both Hans Zimmer. So maybe the real lesson here is I'm more of a Hans Zimmer person than a John Williams person. Okay, this person. is, I may embarrass myself here. Is Hans Zimmer also the guy who did Beverly Hills Cop? Or, no. No, that's, no, uh, that's uh, Michael. Harold uh, Faltermeyer. Uh, Harold Faltermeyer. <laughs> the, yeah. No, <laughs> those are not the same. <laughs> uh, is there any space in a uh, Greatest Movie Soundtracks review uh, for uh, Axel F. And no. Harold Faltermeyer? No. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty good. <laughs> For 1984, it was lovely. I guess if the category is earworm, right. like just gets in your ear, Axel F maybe right. there. So those are scores. Okay. Soundtracks. Okay, soundtracks. Um, let's. I think you have to distinguish movies that are musicals that are movies about about songs where because, the whole thing is the actors otherwise, singing the songs. Otherwise, I would go West Side Story, Sound of Music, um, and then... Rent and Les Mis. So, it, and it really becomes just a recap of just well, what musicals do we like? Right. Well, so now, now, what about right? What about the the Beatles movies? What about right? right. Exactly. And so I, I, I'm trying to. I I was thinking in my mind, we just exclude categorically all these movies about music. Okay. As such. All right. Then I have I have what to me is the obvious winner for the greatest collection of songs in a movie in the history of the world. Okay, lay it on me. The Big Chill. It's on my list. Okay. The Big Chill is fabulous. I think one of the criteria is there's got, it can't just be great songs. There's got to be a rhyme or reason that yep. relates yep. to the movie. I grew up, so my my grand, my grand mom's parents lived in Detroit when I was growing up, and we would take these really long road trips to drive. Like once a year, we would drive from New York to Detroit to see my grandparents. And all I remember about those road trips is listening over and over and over again to the Big Chill soundtrack. Yeah, it's a, it's really a great it's a great soundtrack, especially because I think for both of us, that's the music of a, a slightly different time. Indeed. And it, but you kind of get a little feel for it. 
void quite appreciation. Um, okay, what about Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction, I think, is a is a is a is a legitimate contender. Um, but I, I I wouldn't put Pulp Fiction above The Big Chill, but I would I, I I recognize its place in the pantheon. Yeah, I think it's part of a significant part of what makes that such a fabulous mm-hmm. film. Um, who else have you got? Let's see. Uh, so uh, we have Pulp Fiction, right? We have. <sighs> the Big Chill. Um, I would throw into this conversation, although it's a little bit dated, right? Um, something. Uh, so you said Pulp Fiction. I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember what what was on my list. Um, Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> yeah, that's if 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 the criteria is capturing the, the, the moment. Yeah, yeah. Right. The VGs, pretty fabulous. Uh, I think The Graduate in the yep. Simon and Garfunkel the Graduate. stuff is, you know, un, unmatched. Unmatched. I just the big yeah. chill matches it. Yeah, it's different in a way. You know, I'm not sure how I describe the difference there. Maybe it's the ensemble approach versus the like. Here's here's a single you know uh, single group that's going to provide you yeah. the music throughout. But what do you what do you think about um, Almost Famous? Yeah, Almost Famous. Although if we're going to do like this, like you know, although it gets tricky because and then we got also talk about like singles and we have to talk about singles say is any- quite singles and we is talk almost about say anything you know the, yeah. and reality bites right like the, right. the 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 sort of teen angst 1990s move which is Purple Rain excluded as a quasi musical? So this goes, listen, if Purple Rain is I mean if we're counting Purple Rain you got to count Hard Day's Night you got to count Help is like, it yeah I, I mean guess right so so, yeah. so so under under our completely arbitrary criteria. Right, I think the answer is the big chill wins. All right, now there's some other. Just before we round it out, there's some. I I had a few favorite films for music that I thought were excluded by my own credit uh-huh. category. I want to mention um, uh, Buena Vista Social Club. Yep. The, the soundtrack is sure. so amazing. Totally. Um, and then the other one, it's a Ralph Macchio movie. Uh oh. I know, but it's Crossroads. Ah. Crossroads is a little appreciated film about blues. Little appreciated because they cast Ralph Macchio as like the young blues man. Mm-hmm. It's it's a stretch. Jamie Gertz, uh, a few other very iconic '80s uh, actors, um, but the soundtrack's amazing. So listen, I mean, then the question is, what about like Straight Outta Compton? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, where, a, where the soundtrack is the where where the songs right. are the whole purpose of the narrative in the movie. Well, not the whole purpose, where 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 a sort of the movie is about the progression of the music. Exactly. I I think once you get into the realm of films about music, you throw in things like you know twenty four hour party people. Yep. You have all these all these movies are all great. The music. So what you're all, saying is the big chill is the right answer. The big chill I think has to take top honors. Although for me, um, I have a little trouble putting it ahead of Pulp Fiction yeah. for. Creative song selection yeah. to capture the mood of the film. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll call it a tie. It's a tie. And I think with that, we're done. We're tied. Um, all right. So with that, everybody, we'll be back next week. Um, we have, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. We, we may, I think we're like the one podcast is still getting together. Uh, hey, if, we're the last one standing. <laughs> so with that, um, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Follow Steve at Steve underscore Vladik. Uh, follow us at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, uh, telling your friends to subscribe to the National School of Podcast. Bobby, it's a really cheap holiday gift. I was going to say, give the gift of knowledge and silliness. And give the, national, the, the free gift of the National Security Law Podcast. I love it. I think, I think it should be a stocking stuffer for everybody. My kids are going to be so excited. Seriously. So, uh, happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Um, we Our best wishes to you and yours for a safe and happy, healthy holiday season. We'll be back at you next week. Until then, stay safe out there. Adios.